You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Esteemed historian Mark Knoll, in his book Turning Points, says this about monasticism and St. Benedict. He says, quote, The rise of monasticism was, after Christ's commission to his disciples, the most important and in many ways the most beneficial institutional event in the history of Christianity. For over a millennium, in the centuries between the reign of Constantine and the Protestant Reformation, Almost everything in the church that approached the highest, noblest, and truest ideals of the gospel was done either by those who had chosen the monastic way or by those who had been inspired in their Christian life by the monks. Now, it is almost certainly Benedict of Nursia in Italy who gave the most decisive and most beneficial shape to monasticism. It is to Benedict and his famous rule that the Christian church owes a series of invaluable gifts for regulating a zealous spirit that had often bordered on fanaticism, for curbing a practice of asceticism that easily slid over into Gnosticism, Docetism, or worse, for preserving the centrality of scripture in a movement that made much of inner spiritual illumination, for recalling prayer to the heart of the Christian life, for linking exalted religious experience with the basic realities of work, study, eating, and sleeping, and not least for providing an ideal of monastic life in which reformers have found inspiration and encouragement for 1,500 years. Well, Michael, is this hyperbole? Uh, is Mark Noel onto something here? Does he say too much about monasticism and St. Benedict? What do you think of this quote? Well, I think it's a very important uh, reflection. I, I, I do think that there is an element of hyperbole here, but um, it is striking that when monasticism appears as a major element of uh, Christianity in the fourth century, and then basically dominates the life of the church, both East and West, uh, down to the 50, well, the, the Reformation. Yeah. Uh, one has to explain, you know, this long period of time, over a thousand years, um, uh, why, why monasticism, uh, what were its achievements. Um, it is fascinating to me that all of the major figures in, that we hold up uh, in the fourth century, for example, uh, Athanasius, Basil, Caesarea, Gregory Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, um, Augustine, all of them are either in favor of, of uh, monasticism or they're monks. As Mark Knoll says, they were either monks themselves or people that did these great works were inspired by the monks. So um, it's important, I think, to, as you think about monasticism, that you kind of begin at the beginning. Um, 
that you think about monasticism as it began in the fourth century. And then when we get to Benedict, obviously Benedict is, is really introducing it in a uh, kind of organized form in parts of Western Europe. Who would you say is the first monk? I mean, many would say in the middle of the third century with Antony. Yeah, yeah. Antony is, is, is usually regarded as the first individual who committed himself to a life of um, solitude, silence, asceticism. Mm-hmm. Um, he was bored on that farm in Egypt, right? He just didn't want any more of the farm life. Yeah. Went out into the wilderness and uh, became maybe the, maybe the first monk, at least the one we, we know about. Yeah, it's certainly Athanasius sees him that way. Athanasius in his life of Antony sees uh, Antony as the pioneer. Hmm. But um, what I was going to say was it's, it's, um, it's important to begin at the beginning and look at monasticism as it develops in the early years, rather than kind of looking at it through the eyes of the reformer, where, but after which it's become an institution, very powerful institution, um, and in some ways a corrupt institution uh, over a thousand years later. Um, I mean, the, the, by the, um, uh, the uh, 12th century, uh, monasticism was so powerful that the, the monastic monastery of Cluny in France uh, could make and unmake the, the popes. Um, mm-hmm. They were that important. And there were something like 900 daughter houses that have been founded by, uh, by monks from Cluny. So um, it's very easy to think of the monasticism through the eyes of a Luther or a Calvin or a William Tyndale. Uh, and monasticism comes up very badly in those, their writings. But well, Luther, know. after all, was an Augustinian monk. Mm-hmm. I mean, before he was a Luther that we know, he yep. was, uh, and, and Calvin would always refer back to, to Augustine. I mean, often would. So they're very indebted to, to that strain of monasticism, the Augustinian. But you have to go back, I think, to the early years and see, see what, it, what, what it intended to be. When, when I think of monasticism with you, Michael, I, I, I think of the giants of, of the early church. I mean, when I think of hymn writing, I think of monks like Gregory or Bernard of Clairvaux, right? When you think of missions, you think of Patrick or Boniface. Uh, theology, we already mentioned Augustine. Thomas Aquinas, there's, there's another monk we would think of. But even go further back, and, and you keep pushing us back, and that's good. Um, when you think of scripture translation, I mean, I go to Jerome, don't you? And, and so again, that burden to get the scriptures into the vernacular was starting with Jerome. And then even as we recently had a wonderful conversation about Bede, he carried on that tradition of wanting to get the scripture. So again, monks, uh, history, we think of history, we think of Bede, another, another monk. So uh, they, are, they do loom large in, in the history of the church, as you've just affirmed. And uh, even if we say Mark Knoll gives over to a little bit of hyperbole, there are some, some real giants in church history that, that come from this monastic movement. Yeah, and, and as you say, it lasted over a thousand years. Yeah, it's um, it really is quite a remarkable institution. Um, not all the key figures in this period. Uh, Patrick was probably not a monk, although uh, certainly part of the Celtic Church is the is Celtic monasticism, which is very different from from Benedictine monasticism. Yes, um, it's much more independent, uh, not as uh, firmly rooted in a rule of life as Benedict, for example. And then, well, you, you mentioned Basil, right? And these Cappadocian fathers. 
which we owe so much to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and making sure the Holy Spirit and in, in, in terms of the Trinity. Uh, of course, that's the Eastern Church Benedict. We're going to look at the Western. Uh, but again, these names that are very familiar probably to our listeners, maybe not always recognizing them as part of this monastic movement. I tend to see really Basil as the pioneer of um, what we call cinnabitic monasticism, that is communal living. Um, there mm. are really kind of two forms of monasticism that develop. Antony pioneers uh, an eremitic monasticism, that is um, from the Greek word eremos, meaning desert or solitude or wilderness, and where the monk goes off by himself. Mm. And um, Basil, who comes along probably about 10 years after the death, well, actually only a few years after the death of, um, of Antony. Antony lived to about 105, dying in the 350s. And uh, probably not long after his death, Basil had an opportunity to visit Egypt. And he, he writes that he was amazed by the monks there, but because they had all chosen, many of them, to follow the pattern of Antony, living by themselves, engaging in asceticism, etc. Uh, Basil felt it was an, they were unable to grow in two key areas that he saw as vital to Christian growth. One is love. You know, if you're off by yourself, you, you, you might think you're the most loving of an individual, but it's not until you're in community that you really find out, uh, do I love the brethren? And the second was humility. You know, what, what he actually saw was for many of these men who followed kind of Antony's model, uh, they ended up being refined egotists you know, engaging in kind of um, uh, a kind of Olympic battles as to see who could, who could fast the longest, or who could stay up all night the longest, etc. And uh, Basil, therefore, when he comes, uh, he goes to Egypt in the 350s and comes back to Asia Minor, and he creates a rule, which Benedict will adapt. And hmm. it basically prevents the sort of... Um, on disciplined asceticism. And for Basil, Basil's kind of key verse is, is Acts 4. Uh, it's interesting, it's, uh, it's Acts 4.32. It's picked up in the rule in um, uh, number, th uh, number 33, chapter 33 of the rule. Uh, Let all things be common to all as it is written, that no one call or take to himself anything as his own, uh, is the way the Benedictine rule puts it. And, yeah, he um, forbade private property. Yeah, there would be yeah, no one would I, own anything. Yeah, that's intriguing. You know, when you, when you, mm -hmm. well, you know, a big thing with me is that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And um, in recent days, there have been a number of voices I've heard in North America who have argued that one of the principles of evangelical Christianity, one of the principles of biblical Christianity, is the right of private property. And then you read, <laughs> it's in, uh, chapter 33. Uh, the vice of personal ownership must, by all means, be cut out in the cut out of the monastery. Well, Michael, to your point, I have it right here. It says it is Benedict says this: it is essential to eliminate from the monastery the vice. You, you use that word. That's right. The vice of owning personal property. He says, without the direct permission of the abbot, no one should presume to give, receive, or retain anything as his own. Nothing at all. Not a book. Not a tablet. Not a writing stylus. Absolutely nothing. So he, <laughs> no wiggle room there. Yeah, and so you, you, you suddenly realize this, this goes right against the way North American evangelicals frame their Christianity. And it, it forces you to ask the question, 
is my framing of Christianity, namely the right of private property and the right of private ownership, uh, that is absolutely essential to being a Christian and it's supported by the Bible. Am I reading the Bible correctly or has my culture shaped me? That's a great question. And maybe we won't answer that tonight, right? Oh, but... I've got no intention <laughs> of answering it. <laughs> you, you, we're just putting the questions out there. We don't presume to answer them. But we can ask, we can ask a lot of questions. We can sure do that. Well, we, we've run ahead a little bit to Benedict. Let, let's, let's move maybe into a little more direct discussion of Benedict. Uh, taking our cue from Mark Knoll, he would say Benedict is the premier. He doesn't use that word I just did, but premier monk. Uh, that that sets the course for so much of at least the Western Church, um, and and just curious, do you give a lot of time to Benedict in your in your church history class when you teach it to our students? I don't. Okay, <laughs> I, I feel Sorry. embarrassed to say no. Well, you can refer him to this podcast now. Yeah, partly because it, it's Basil that I see as the pioneer, okay. and Benedict as translating Basilian ideals of communal Christianity, communal monasticism based on Acts 4.32 into the West. And so Basil gets the lion's share of my reflection on what monasticism is about. Um, and uh, I find it, uh, it was interesting reading Benedict on prayer uh, in uh, chapter 20 of the rule and Benedict on, um, on humility. And the, oh, humility the 12 steps to get it. I know Amazing. it was huge, and yeah. that's very Basilian. Um, uh, I haven't had the time, but I'd love to kind of compare what Benedict says on humility to Basil's homily, uh, homily twenty on humility. Um, and that would be that. This might in this might inform you know this episode we're doing together here might inform your lecture. You could you know you have the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Oh you yeah, have Benedict and Basil. This this would be a great. Uh, compare and yeah, contrast. Is, yeah, this has been very helpful for me just prepping for tonight uh, or when we were recording this. Um, the, um, the normal focus of my uh, reflection on Western monasticism is the Celtic church, which is a very okay. different style, completely different. And uh, I think, I think uh, Mark Knoll's point is, is dead on in this sense, is that Benedictine monasticism is the major monastic uh, kind of taproot uh, running through the early Middle Ages into the middle of Middle Ages, high Middle Ages. And um, it's only when you get the rise of, say, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and various others in the high Middle Ages that you get different forms of monasticism emerging. Hmm. Noel seems to make much uh, when he's crediting Benedict with so much. He puts scripture at the heart of his rule. And he says that's why maybe he's obviously speaking as a Protestant, why he would maybe value Benedict so much because of his emphasis on the scriptures. It's not to say the other monks uh, don't, but maybe not to the degree that Benedict does. That might be something. Do you see yeah, that? I think, yeah, I think early, the early Benedictine movement did have this very, very heavy emphasis on scripture. And thus, you know, whenever you ate your meals, there was appointed, and he's got a whole chapter on this in the rule, uh, a reader who was designed to read during the meals, he would be appointed on a weekly basis and he would eat his meal later after the rest of the monks had eaten. So there'd be no talking while you're eating, but you're hearing scripture read or maybe, you know, maybe some of the writings of the church fathers, but it was normally holy scripture. Um, and then you have seven times of prayer a day, 
where the Psalms would be used as a vehicle for prayer, scripture readings. Um, and really they would sing the Psalter. I mean, so much of the, the singing would be Psalms, which yep. again, the emphasis on scripture. So even in song, not just in uh, the public reading, of course, but also in what they sang. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, Calvin's going to pick up on, uh, obviously, in, in, in the Reformation. You know, you mentioned silence, Michael. I mean, that's a big part of Benedict. Uh, he emphasizes so much in his prologue, as you know, listen. The first word of the rule is listen, my son. And here are instructions from a loving father to you, but listen. And that's really hard in our day and age. Maybe we can come back to that when we think about Benedict for today. Uh, but he has a whole, you know, just chapter six on silence. Mm-hmm. And he talked one of the one of the main things for a disciple to do if you want to grow in, in grace and be a, a faithful disciple is to, well, shut our mouth right? <laughs> and do a lot more listening yes. and being silent. Uh, he says this, I, I, I have it opened here. It is the master's job to speak and teach. The disciples should be silent and listen. And so any request to a superior should be made with all humility and respectful submission. Uh, we also condemn and forbid all places in all places vulgar jokes and hateful gossip and anything said to make others laugh foolishly. <laughs> Maybe evangelicals need to hear that. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, th- I think yeah, what you've got here is, is uh, picking up some of the very strong moral uh, exhortations in the scriptures uh, regarding the tongue. Um, yeah. Which, That's a big part of the rule, isn't it, with Benedict? He makes much of the tongue. Yeah. And therefore, the importance of silence. Uh, silence helps you discipline uh, what you say, when you speak, uh, how you say it, um, and so on. It's funny. We're talking about this as we do a, a podcast episode. We are talking a lot tonight when the subject we're examining would tell us maybe to be, be quiet. I don't know. Uh, let's go to Benedict, just a little bio on him. So we talked about the years. I mean, I think if I remember right, uh, born 480, dies around 550. So that's the period yeah. of time. And, and how do we know anything really about Benedict? There, there's a, a particular pope that tells us a lot about him. Yeah, Gregory the Great um, has um, an account of Benedict's life, which is critical for kind of filling in the gaps. We have the ben- Benedict's rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's uh, Gregory who gives us the kind of framework or the, the context in which that rule is written and kind of details elements of, of, of uh, Benedict's life. Now, Michael, we talked about a little bit of this when we looked at Bede uh, last week. But as, as a historian, tell me, tell me about Gregory's work is really compelling to me and interesting to me. Uh, some would call it hagiography. I mean, it is. And sometimes that word today is, is I tell my students, read good critical biographies. Don't read hagiography. And yet what, what Gregory was doing was not only accepted in the time, but it was a real teaching tool. What's he doing with this hagiography and taking all of book two? And forgive me, I forget. Was there five books mm-hmm. in? I don't remember. But all of book two is dedicated to Benedict. Yeah, I, again, you have, this is uh, the kind of the, the vita or life of saints that really goes back to, it probably goes back to Athanasius, uh, the, uh, the, hmm. the vita uh, Antoni, the life of Antony, 
maybe even earlier, um, uh, Pontius's life of Cyprian. Um, there is the develops definitely in the fourth century. You have things like the the life of Antony. You've got Gregory Nyssa's life of Macrina. Um, you've got the remembrance of Perpetua, who died as a martyr. Um, and you have various saints whose lives are remembered in the fourth century. And um, the Christian church is really kind of tapped into a very ancient genre, the genre of biography. Uh, Greco-Roman historians had used it to great effect. And uh, both Greco-Roman historians and early Christian historian, uh, writers uh, believe that uh, the lives of exemplary individuals needed to be told. Um, usually they, they focused on one or two virtues that were central to the person's life. Um, this is, I'm thinking here now of, of Greco-Roman biography. I'm thinking particularly of Tacitus's biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, who was the Roman governor of, of, of Britain. And um, what um, Tacitus wanted to show uh, was how do you live a life of integrity in the higher echelons of society when the ruling powers are completely nuts. And the emperor at the time was Domitian or Domitian. And he was a megalomaniac who was desperately jealous of anybody like Agricola who was capable, a proven governor, uh, in, in uh, Domitian's mind, a very dangerous individual because he could stage a, re a revolt of the legions in Britain, march on Rome. And uh, he eventually shelled the guy. He recalled him and just basically refused to use his, his, his great abilities. And Tacitus shows us how a, man, how a man in the worst of times, in the worst of governments, can nonetheless live a life of integrity. And this is typical of a, of a Greco-Roman biography. You, you focus on an, an element of a person's life. You don't tell all the detail, but you focus on an element. And Christians take this over in their lives of the saints. And Gregory's I, really doing this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. And, so. and maybe if we limit it to two, I would say that the two virtues he's really trying to, to, to highlight with Benedict is his devotion, obviously, his consecration unto God and prayer. Would you say, I mean, prayer, every miracle, because he loves to tell these miracle stories. And these are, these are amazing stories. Uh, and they're always, almost always, not always, but accompanied, accompanied by prayer and showing the centrality of prayer in the Christian life. Yeah, uh, so whether or not you, you know, you could get hung up on the whole issue of, you know, did the stories, did, did those miracles right. actually take place? But he's actually, he's, he's doing two things there. One is he's obviously defending the reality of the Christian faith in terms of its ability to do the miraculous. But secondly, he's also showing, as you've said, that here's a man whose life is, is, is suffused, um, permeated with prayer, and therefore he stands as a model for the believer. Well, and that's really, and we talked about that last week, you brought this up so well, Michael, it's aspirational history in a sense, right? I mean, that's, he's commending Benedict as one worthy of emulation and saying, I'm, gonna I'm telling you all this for a great purpose, um, do likewise. Or, or follow his, his, his virtuous uh, life. Uh, I find it interesting. Remember, he, uh, let, me, let me read a little, a little piece yep. here, get you to comment on this. This, this is Gregory. He opens um, in this book too, and we should tell our, our listeners that might not be familiar with this, it's dialogues. It's, it's Gregory's dialogues. 
And it's, it's an imaginary con. He sets it up. Maybe you could write something like this one day. He sets this up uh, as a, as a dialogue, literally the dialogues, a dialogue between him and a young deacon named Peter. And so it's an imaginary deacon. I mean, he's not, he's not real, but Gregory's got a, a, an agenda and he just frames it in this, in this dialogue. And so he opens up uh, book two, commending Benedict and his young kind of apprentice, Peter is going to be asking questions throughout, but he opens by saying there was a man of saintly life. Blessed Benedict was his name, and he was blessed also with God's grace. Even in boyhood, he showed mature understanding, for he kept his heart detached from every pleasure with a strength of character far beyond his years. While still living in the world, free to enjoy its earthly advantages, he saw how barren it was with its attractions and turned from it without regret. And so he proceeds to talk about a young man making a decision to forsake the world, live unto God, and, and then it unfolds from there. And it's really a, a compelling narrative uh, of one life set apart for God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, such a, he leaves this, you know, it comes from a wealthy family there, and I think it was Rome. And, and, but, he, but he forsook this education he could have had in, in worldly learning. And sometime later, he goes and lives in a cave for three years. Three years, lives in a cave. So there's that Greek word monos, meaning alone. And he's yeah. saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live alone unto God. And it was, wasn't it someone from a nearby uh, monastery that would bring him yes. food, like lower it down in a bucket? <laughs> three years. And then that, you remember that story of this, uh, Gregory relays how, how the devil sent this great temptation this temptation of, of a woman, uh, you know, in his mind, overwhelmed with sexual temptation. So he rolled around in a bunch of briars and thorns and was bloodied and said, from that moment on, he never struggled with uh, lust again. Uh, so things like that, that makes up a lot of the stories. And uh, you might recall there, there was a band of people that started to take note of Benedict and his um, consecration, and they wanted to follow him. And he warned them and he said, look, I'm, I'm strict. You're not going to like how, how much I'm going to call you away from all your worldly appetites. He said, no, we want you to be our, our leader. We'll follow you. Well, it turned out he was right. They didn't like it after a time. So they tried to kill him. I mean, this is just one of two times Gregory tells us where uh, because of his vigorous uh, exhortations to holiness, his followers wanted to kill him. Well, the other one was someone was just jealous of him, but they poisoned his cup of wine. And he did the sign of the cross over it. The wine goblet shattered and he realized he had been poisoned. He's told him, I can't, I can't work with you anymore for some reason. <laughs> right? It's just incredible, but he wasn't about to give up his efforts at holiness. He said, look, if it's not for you, then I'm not for you. <laughs> oh, well, and sometime later, you'll recall there was that uh, jealous monk that uh, tried to poison him with some bread. And he knew enough to call on the raven. And Gregory tells the story far better than I. So our listeners, you really need to go read book two of Gregory's dialogues. But uh, uh, Benedict spoke to the raven, said, take this loaf of bread and go discard it off in the wilderness. First, the raven wouldn't listen to him. And he continued to plead with the the raven. The raven did it. And uh, again, his life was preserved in the providence of God through a raven. Um, when someone was trying to poison with poison him with bread, 
So what a life. And that was early on. You know, there's plenty yeah. more to come. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell, tell us, Michael, let's, let's take, maybe we can take our listeners in a little bit of time we have left. Uh, you had alluded to this earlier. Take us into a day in the life of a Benedictine monk. Uh, how many worship services? And this was based on seven. the Psalm 119. Yeah. Seven. seven. Yeah. There is a so, psalm that says, you know, I worship thee seven times a day. Yeah. And, psalm uh, 119. The ones, the ones that I find really quite remarkable, like how did they get up at midnight? Uh, right. You know, like they didn't have bells. They didn't have alarm clocks. Uh, mm -hmm. And three in the morning. But even back to the one at midnight, Michael, isn't this amazing? See, what's so incredible to me about Benedict's rule, it's at one time so profound and yet so practical. So he'll give even instructions recognizing midnight's tough time, especially for the younger guys to get up. So he'll say he'll want the younger sleeping in the same room with the older so the older can yeah. exhort them at midnight. He says, because what does he say? Like, uh, you know, youthful when you're young, uh, it's easy to be lazy or something like that. So you need yeah. the older men exhorting you. It's, it's time to do what he called the work of God, right? So these worship services were the, this was the work of God, um, the work he has for us, worship, right? So you would have- Seven you, times. Yeah, you would have those uh, times that would punctuate the day. I mean, one of the, I think the, the um, very important elements of Benedictine monasticism is it dignifies manual labor. Yes. You know, so in uh, it's uh, chapter 48, uh, daily work, it begins of idleness is the enemy of the soul. And therefore, the brethren ought to be employed in manual labor at certain times and at others in devout reading. And so he dignifies manual labor. Uh, so the monastery is not a place that you can go to to flee from from just the the the, the, the ordinary round of doing things you know, growing vegetables, uh, you know, weeding the garden, uh, being a carpenter, amongst who are carpenters, maybe building, you know, beds, stools, repairing things, uh, those in the kitchen cooking, uh, etc. All of these things have to be done. And um, Benedict sees that, that work as holy work, which will be picked up, obviously, by the reformers. Um, and George Herbert, for example, the English um, evangelical poet, or rather Protestant poet, you know, the, the, the maid who cleans the room onto God is, is doing as good a work for God as the pastor preparing his sermon. And you're um, right, Michael, to make that connection with reformers. I mean, Luther's doctrine of vocation and, and yeah. Calvin, the, the dignity of work. And we can trace that again back to monasticism and in yep. particular Benedict's rule. Yes. Um, and so monks would have their assigned positions. Uh, some would be working in the garden. Others would be doing other forms of manual labor. Uh, they would have carpentry shops, etc. cetera. Um, and most uh, of the, the uh, monasteries, at least the larger monasteries, would have uh, an area for care for the sick. So the earliest hospitals, like Basil of Caesarea is invent, basically creates the first hospital, um, literally wow. for lepers. And uh, hospitals normally are attached in the Middle Ages to, to monasteries, and the monks will care for the sick. And then, of course, you have a scriptorium where writing mm -hmm. happens. 
And uh, one of the one of the great blessings of monasticism for the church is that they preserve the scriptures. Well, isn't it amazing? Happened? We have preservation, uh, and then and then copying. Yep. And and then production of original works, and all yep. that happening in the scriptorium. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So we wouldn't have the Bible if it were not for monasticism. Well, that that's enough to say it's. I mean, that kind of right there says Noel might be right. <laughs> without without the scriptures yeah uh, yeah exactly no that's incredible well and i mentioned michael and i, and I know we're, we're about uh at the end of our time here but to give our listeners and i want to encourage you you can find uh benedict's rule you know for free on on the internet i mean you can go get it and read it but i do want to commend to you and we'll put this in the notes on the podcast i've been enjoying philip freeman's translation and introduction to the rule of St. Benedict. And this came out just uh, last year, 2020. Uh, really good introduction. Uh, appreciate his, he's a prof out of Pepperdine, uh, but done some really good work here. But let me just give our listeners an idea of, of how it is simultaneously profound and yet his rule practical. And, and Michael, you know this, some of the chapters, I mean, he talks about the care of the sick, very practical, chapter, chapter 36. Uh, chapter 37, the elderly and children. You know, what, what is a Christian way to interact with the elderly and children? Uh, chapter 38, reading at meals, uh, the proper amount of food, the proper amount of drink, silence at night, he goes on. Uh, but those are some of the, the simple things. Um, the welcoming of guests. People don't know this monasteries, guests would come all the time. And the opportunities to practice hop- hospitality were many. Uh, and he has a whole chapter on the welcoming of guests, um, the craftsmen of the monastery. So you're right. You talked about that earlier. But one thing I want to uh, have our listeners here as, as, as we um, wrap this up, this chapter four on the tools for good works. Here's where we talked about very practical things. Here's where this is profound. And, and I want to make it clear that Benedict knew, but for the grace of God, this stuff isn't happening. But here's this chapter four, the tools for good works. And I'd love your thoughts on this. He opens by saying, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. You got to start there. Then love your neighbor as yourself. So nothing innovative here. It says the tools for good works are first love to God and neighbor. But now he gets really practical. He says, after this, so after love to God and love to neighbor, after this, I won't read them all, but do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not desire what you should not, do not give false evidence, you must honor everyone, never do to anyone what you would not want done to you, deny yourself so that you may follow Christ, goes on with some other very practical things that are born out of love to God and love to neighbor, help the poor, go help those in trouble, comfort those who are grieving, put nothing before the love of Christ. Do not act in anger. Do not store up a grudge. Do not let deceit find a home in your heart. Goes on with some other things. Here's one. Put your hope in God. If you notice anything good in yourself, I love this. Give him the credit, not yourself. But if you see evil in yourself, admit to it and acknowledge that it belongs to you alone. So the evil's ours. All the good is God's. Uh, Two more. Every day, remind yourself that someday you are going to die. That, that's good and practical, right? Every day, remind yourself you won't live forever. 
Uh, here's one. Don't love talking too much. Hmm. <laughs> Do not take pleasure in quarrels. Boy, that informs our social media presence, yep. doesn't it? Yep. And here's where the grace comes in. I mean, less people only hear law. Here's grace. And finally, never give up on the mercy of God. So. Yeah, very, very practical. And uh, in many respects, uh, it, monasticism becomes a, a vehicle for, for passing on the biblical faith in terms of um, practicalities. Um, and uh, the monasteries become places of Christian education, spiritual formation, as you said, hospitals, um, places of, of, um, of hospitality. You know, often in towns, there wouldn't be an inn, and, but there'd be a monastery, and you would, you, it would be expected you could stay at the monastery um, and, and be entertained, as it were, by the, by the monks. Hmm. Well, Michael, all this, we're, all this glowing language we've had uh, for monasticism, and, and I admire Benedict. I think so highly of him, even more so after, you know, I've prepped in more detail for this, for this program. But any cautions? with the monastic movement and i mean in other words why aren't we all monks I mean, yeah <laughs> are there because, some cautions because, here yeah because monasticism is bound up also with uh, chastity and um uh, celibacy sure um and I, I, the, the the calling of most christians is the married life and it's just not going to work in a monastic setting <laughs> it would not no it would and, not um that that is a that that's a significant faux pas, I think, a mistake of the, the monastic leaders. Um, what? Well, what do you think of just Christians separating? I mean, there's something about the consecrated life separating ourselves. I mean, James says, "What is pure religion? Well, to care after the orphans and the widows, and to to remain unstained by the world." So you could say, "Well, that that leads you to a monastic life, right?" Well. There's other parts of scripture, too, that speak to being salt and light and engaged. I mean, after all, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. What do we, yeah, what do we make exactly. of that? Yeah, I, the, monks, the monks, like the Basilian model was very different from the Eremitic uh, Antonian model. The Basilian model, Basil actually planted his monasteries normally right in the heart of cities next to churches. So they were involved in city life. They were involved in church life. They were hospitals, as I've, we've mentioned. Uh, they were places of hospitality, as we've also mentioned. So Basil expected his monks, and this is picked up by Benedict, uh, to be involved in the larger culture. Um, it's, it's not a flight into the desert like, like Antony. Right. Um, and like certain forms of Celtic monasticism. So it, it's not without significance that the Celtic monks... Uh, set up uh, their first monastery in Scotland on Iona, an island by itself. And then when they go to Northumbria, they set it up on Lindisfarne, again, uh, on a, an island. Well, it's at least a, it's an island twice a day because there's an ismus that is, is, is sometimes it's connected to the island, sometimes it's not because of the tidal patterns. Um, Interesting. Um, so there is, um, there is in benedictine monasticism a desire to shape europe um 
that's the impulse eventually. And Benedictine monasticism has an enormous impact upon European culture. Mm -hmm. And um, so real monasticism isn't necessarily a kind of withdrawal from the world. Um, that's I a good corrective. More, I think a lot of evangelicals would think that's what it means. Yeah, I don't think You're, it is. I think what real okay. monasticism in the minds of Basil and Benedict was a, an attempt to recapture the communal nature of Christianity as was experienced in the early chapters of the book of Acts. It's good. But I've the problem is, is the issue of celibacy. Uh, yeah. I think that's a major, uh, major problem. Late, late antiquity, and, and Benedict sh is shaped by this, um, really wrestles with human sexuality. And mm -hmm. well, how does human sexuality fit into the disciples' life? Um, Benedict doesn't go into an enormous amount, but a monk is to be celibate. And um, so, you know, you know, Bede, for example, Bede, Bede will say in the book of Acts, so uh, it's a section dealing with prayer. He says the, the Bible, and he's thinking of 1 Thessalonians, commands us to pray always. But he says, if I, if I have sexual relations with my wife, I can't be praying. Therefore, <laughs> it's one or the other, and I've got to pray always, so sexual relations with a wife goes. And, Maybe that's a false dichotomy. I don't know. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> I think it is. I think it yeah. is. So you've got uh, you've got a real you've got a real problem here, and th this will become a, a, increasingly an issue as the 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 as monasticism develops in the medieval period, and mm -hmm. by the latter part of the medieval period, you know monks are involved in they're they're celibate, but they're not always chaste. That's right. That's right. So you you talked early on in this program about uh, the need for reform in the monastery. Yeah. They were not perfect places. And no. even with Bede, I mean, he was giving exhortations at the end of his life about some of the greed, the avarice, the things that was that were going on in the monasteries in the eighth century. So um, any anything done by fallen humans, though saved by grace, uh, has that yeah. opportunity for, for corruption. Yeah. Uh, I've heard Protestants, so Michael, and I will uh, get your thoughts on this. That they they will say they think um, oftentimes evangelicals will think um, monks had salvation by works faith and works but we're Protestants justification by faith alone and these monastic lifestyles were really trying to earn salvation um, misunderstanding there I, I I don't read Benedict that way I mean you could I can see how people might read him that way but he typically talks about all these works being done as a child of God, not to somehow become a child of God, but as the outworking of God as our father. Yeah, I think, in, I, again, early monasticism is different from the way it develops. And definitely yeah. for Luther, as Luther would, you know, Luther talks about, you know, um, if he'd stayed in the monastery much longer, um, he would have martyred himself to death with fastings and prayers and all night vigils. That's right. And he says at one point, if if a, if, a, if a monk can gain heaven through monkery, it should have been me. That's right. And No, um, you're right. So in, maybe in, when... in the latter, again, part of this has got to do with the emergence of semi-Pelagianism in the, the medieval church. And Benedict is still part of that world that is still patristic. And uh, Augustinian, 
beats Augustinian in his understanding of salvation by grace alone. Mm -hmm. And um, even as a Benedictine monk, I mean, he was a Benedict. Exactly. Uh, you know. So Benedict has is got this, and uh, Basil definitely had it. Um, Basil actually, in one of his homilies, said, "We are justified by faith alone." Hmm. So, um, but this is a problem that afflicts um, monasticism as it develops. But You're right. Most, most clearly seen in Luther. Are, yeah. Sorry. And I was saying, like you said, most clearly seen in Luther. Yeah. Uh, that that progression towards salvation but by Protestant works. churches, you know, I mean, you you give them long enough, and unless they unless there is clear biblical teaching and a determination to cleave to 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 the scriptures, this 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 um, desire to justify oneself by one's works will invariably creep in, and you see it in liberal Protestantism, eh? And the social you don't need a monastery for that corruption, do you? No. I mean, no. We find ways uh, yeah. um, out, outside the, the cloister to still want to add something to our, our salvation. Or, or... Well, last thing, Michael, I, I, you know, Benedict for today. We did bead for today, and I want to think Benedict for today. One of the great takeaways for me as I read his rule and I read his life, I'm so challenged by it. I'm convicted by it. Um, but his rule in living a deliberate life. I think it was Mark Dever some time ago that wrote the, the, the deliberate church. Well, yeah, we need deliberate churches. We also need deliberate Christians. I think that would make up deliberate churches. But what do you make of the deliberate life? I had a, you know, your, uh, John Woodbridge was one of my church history professors at Trinity some years ago. And I remember him saying something to a, in this a huge class. There were about 80 students in there. I was taking him for church history one. And he was reading some primary source work. He would sometimes just sit on a bench or a, a stool and read to us from a primary sources. And he was reading one of the fathers. And then he paused and he looked up. because He always looked down. He just it was not about fanfare. And he looked up and he said, the church today could stand a little more legalism. <laughs> just got all <laughs> legalism. <laughs> and in the context, he was talking about, I think, deliberate life yes, or yes. an effort at piety, true holiness. Do you get that from Benedict? I sure do. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, not all of the, the various aspects of the rule, uh, I think, speak as powerfully, but much of it does. Yeah. You know, the whole area of um, um, uh, idleness, the importance of work. Um, a reverence in prayer, chapter 20. Hmm. Um, he says, uh, if we do not venture to approach men who are in power, except with humility and reverence, or we wish to ask a favor, how much must we beseech the Lord God of all things with humility and purity of devotion? Let us be assured it is not in many words, but in purity of heart that we are heard. For this reason, prayer ought to be short and pure. Hmm. Right? It's, it's very helpful. And... Um, Yes, I, I think you're right. I think the, the whole idea of a, a discipline of life is something that we can learn from Benedict. Well, Michael, and, I really know, Baptists, enjoyed it. Baptists, historically, uh, I'm sorry to bring Baptists into this. Please, um, no, go ahead. But Baptists, we, we, historically, we've always had, a, we've had covenants. We covenant together to do this, to live this way. And in the last, well, in the 20th century, covenants have just gone, gone the way of, uh, we, we've forgotten that we ever had these things. But these were, these were essential things that were re renewed every year. 
And aren't these regula? These are rules. Yeah, in, in exactly. a sense. Right? I mean, that's so we're not so different from no, from Benedict no. in trying to create this structure or this framework uh, to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in community. Yeah, that's yeah, what a exactly. church covenant is. It's it's a rule. It's a yeah. It's a rule uh, of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, for instance, Baptists were um, committed to uh, good business practices. Uh, matters that were talked about within the life of the church were not to be repeated to outsiders. Um, holiness of, of one's body, um, etc., and uh, committing to, to, to reject gossip about each other, to love one another fervently. I mean, a number of these things you can actually find in, in Benedict. I don't think the man who drew up the wow. covenants in our churches were reading Benedict, but it's the same it's a very same idea of a rule of life well what's interesting michael is so many this might be just indicative of uh of evangelicalism where everything gets thinner everything gets watered down everything it's it's a minimalist mentality whether it's our doctrinal statements but even our church covenants so one page uh just for our listeners uh, the rule of benedict has a hundred well excuse me 73 chapters so he, yeah. I'm not saying our church covenants should have 73 sections or 73 yeah. chapters, but, but they could stand to be a little more robust, a little yeah. more thick. Well, and we, we, we could actually use them. Yeah. I mean, I'd ask my hearers or our hearers, when was the last time you recited your covenant in your church? Do you have a church covenant? You know, do you even question. know what it is? Yep. Well, Michael, this has been very helpful uh, for me. I just love these conversations and I trust uh, our listeners are are appropriately challenged by by Benedict and monasticism. and, And I'll look forward to another conversation with you next week. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.